Thank you and good evening. Thank you for joining us on the last day of Corridors of Power. This exhibition has run from the 15th of this month, a week. Each day at 5.30, we've had a keynote or a panel presentation. Today is no exception. Uh, today, I ran the last of the curator's guides to the exhibition. I wasn't planning on running it today, but the feedback from the first three occasions I ran it last week was such that it did help the people who came for the curator's tour to appreciate and understand the exhibition better. In terms of the, the, the feedback that I've got, it has been uh, almost on every single night, told to me that I should take this out of Colombo and in Singhala and Tamil, that is, on the cards. Um, what is uh, uh, also interesting is that Mr. Harsha de Silva, our Deputy Foreign Minister who came two or three nights ago, was interested in taking this to Parliament as well. So obviously if there is an opportunity and uh, uh, availability and avenue through which that could happen, uh, we would, we would, I would uh, explore that. Uh, there was also on the first night somebody who said that this should be taken out of the country and that uh, in a sense, it is an idea that would resonate in countries like Nepal, for example, uh, which has come out of an eight-year constitution-making process uh, that's been fairly convoluted. And currently in Nepal, there are some very, very interesting discussions around the grounding of their new constitution. And the former correspondent of the British Broadcasting Corporation, Charles, uh, Charles Haviland, uh, has written a very, very interesting piece uh, published earlier today on the BBC on Nepal's constitution-making process, and I recommend that you actually go and read that because it does have very interesting uh, links through uh, to what Sri Lanka has gone through and may in fact go through in the future as we embark on our new constitution-making process. Um, at the risk of repeating myself for jo uh, to, uh, to those who joined on the tour, my name is Sanjana Hattatua. I'm the editor of a civic media platform called Ground Views and a senior researcher at the Center for Policy Alternatives and the curator of this exhibition. Uh, this has been a collaboration with my old friend Asanga Valikala and Chandadaswatha. Asanga is one of the finest constitutional theorists I know. He's currently teaching in Edinburgh. And Channa is one of the finest architects that we've produced and currently resident here. Insofar as the project goes, it's using architecture to spatially imagine the power dynamics as enshrined in 43 years of our constitution-making process. It has never been done before, to the best of our knowledge, anywhere in the world, including, obviously, uh, in other more mature uh, liberal const uh, 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 democracies. The whole idea of this, the intent, uh, in a sense, it's purely coincidental that it's been held now. This was, as I told some of you on the tour, a project conceptualized two years ago. The whole intent of, of, of doing this is a frustration that endures that the constitution-making process needs to be anchored to and rooted to the ground, the people, and one hopes, I hope, I hope that you also agree with me that by endeavors such as this, imperfect though they may be, you are trying to always communicate the values, the ethics, the normative foundations of what should be and could be a constitution we can all be proud of uh, and what we have never seen over 43 years. And that is what I want you to take from this. 
as I've always said on every single night that I've come here, where we are at is at a historical juncture that we ourselves need to see ourselves as architects of our future. And we've had Mr. Jayampate Vikramaratna, we've had the coordinating secretary of the president, Mr. Shirar Laktilaka, come here and say, uh, although Mr. Jayampate Vikramaratna didn't say that in his official capacity, we know that he will play a central role in architecting our new constitution. Mr. Shirar Laktilaka, uh, in his official capacity as coordinating secretary of the president, will also have a great role to play in bringing the president on board as well. Uh, both are, are, are very interested in power sharing and federalism. Uh, and Shiral made the point that as a consequence of these, this week, this was the first time in, in almost 10 years that we've talked about federalism. Uh, whether we agree with it or not is not the question, that we've talked about federalism. And so this, this week has been an opportunity to talk about some, some, some hotly contested issues that are fundamentally important moving forward as well. And I hope that you see yourselves as architects of that future. Uh, and there have been gentlemen in the audience who've come up to me and said, Sanjay, I didn't understand any of this before I came. And I found all of this quite fascinating. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled uh, as a curator that that has been the case. I've had 12-year-old children come up to me and understand these drawings. I've had visually impaired people, as Chris well knows, come up and understand these, these models. I've had uh, computer programs telling me interesting things that I knew of, but certainly some of the other people in the, uh, some of the other viewers have found very interesting. And I hope that you take from this lessons that you can apply moving forward in our engagement with the state and the government around a new constitution. I am absolutely delighted at today's panel. My interest has always been that the youth are not some bloody future in, in some indeterminable future, uh, because they always said that in this country at least, that they are our future, but they are our present. And they are uh, a, a, a real present. And that our future is not just in the hands of the youth, but that they are architects of our present as well. And that we need to stop this condescending bollocks that we engage them in conversations just so that we architect the future without actually considering themselves as vital architects of our present. And in this light, I have always endeavored in the exhibitions that I've curated to bring their voice and make their voice heard. And I find that this panel on the last day of the exhibition is particularly important for me as architects of, and also critiques of what we have been in the past and what we can be in the future, join us up on this stage. Um, the moderator today, uh, Amjad, is somebody I've had uh, uh, over a, a short period of time, actually, as, as, as the case goes, uh, some absolutely stimulating discussions on religiosity, religion, but also basically governance and, uh, and, and, and power uh, in this country. Uh, and in particular, the horrible uh, violence that we saw as a consequence of Islamophobia before the 8th of January this year, and the potential, actually, for that to actually uh, emerge again in the future. Uh, Debbie, some of you may know, Deborah Phillips uh, from uh, her involvement with and engagement with uh, and work around Columboscope. Uh, I have found her insights into Colombo's architecture in particular uh, and a hidden history almost of a city we call home quite fascinating and quite revealing insofar as uh, uh, her insights go into making the known uh, uh, and what we would pass every day into the stories that we might not have heard before. 
Uh, rookie uh, Fernando needs no introduction to some of us as one of this country's most courageous human rights advocates. Uh, uh, his writing has been featured quite often on Ground Views, uh, and he's a, a fairly well-known speaker and writer, uh, an ardent champion of basic decency and dignity, such that Dr. Saravan Muthu spoke uh, uh, earlier this week. Uh, the kind of values that we need to have in this country, irrespective of what timber our constitution takes. And Rookie is a living embodiment of those values that we so desperately want to enshrine. Uh, Chris, Crystal Reed, again, somebody I knew of late, but have been following on Twitter for quite a bit, if only for her sports updates. And the, uh, the multitude of hearts that she has on her Twitter profile. But let not this, uh, let not this uh, take away from, uh, I think, uh, what Chris does, uh, what Chris does uh, through her uh, civic engagement and through the kind of institutions uh, that, uh, you know, at 38 I haven't architected is, is, is quite, quite inspiring. Uh, and uh, as a Colombo shape, I think we have another uh, in our audience. I think these are the people uh, that the likes of Jayampati and Shiral uh, would be well to engage with moving into the future. And then on the same lines, we have Senel. Uh, Senel's sister, uh, 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 was part of my last exhibition and a panel that I curated as well. And I'm very happy that Senel uh, followed suit uh, and joining us uh, today. Uh, Senel is also a very, very well-known activist uh, and writer uh, and speaker as well, and also trainer uh, for those of you who follow his work uh, over, over online social media. So I, I thank you very much again for coming today. All of these sessions and keynotes are recorded and they will be subsequently put up as a podcast. Uh, I have already got uh, a number of requests for Jayanpati Vikramaratna's podcast because people want to know what he's thinking about a new constitution. But uh, I beg your patience. Uh, our sound technicians will clean up the sound. And I, in the course of the next week or so, um, I hope to have the podcasts online. As a consequence, though, of our recording, when we go into the question and answer session, may I please ask that you wait until a mic is in your hand before you speak, because we need to capture your voice. And with those short introductory comments, I now hand over the floor and the session to Amjad. Please. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sanjana, for the introduction and making my life easy as well, in introducing um, the speakers as well. But uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to come and moderate this session, and thank you for also considering me to be part of the youth. Um, uh, this is quite a, you know, it's 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 quite a it's quite a compliment. But um, let me start off by sort of complimenting you and uh, Channa and uh, Asanga on the work that's been done. I think it's a truly fascinating insight um, and a real uh, education process um, to understand something which can be quite quite complicated. Um, I would actually ascertain that you need to not only take this to other countries where they're going through this process, but ha being someone who works with Sri Lankans overseas who are looking at uh, getting involved in reconciliation and in Sri Lanka, I would think that you need to take this to places like the UK, Australia, Canada, where Sri Lankan, we have a huge Sri Lankan expatriate community who possibly do not understand the dynamics of, of these things. Um, and speaking as someone who uh, started life off as a civil engineer, um, I'm absolutely horrified that this could even be thinking, be thought of as built. So it's, it's quite a, it's it's good thing that we're perhaps at the space that you mentioned that we are at, where we have a future moving forward. Um, 
So today's panel really is looking at not only interrogating the past, uh, but looking at the present and actually looking at the future. And how can we look at a much more just and equitable uh, and, 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 and democratic future? Can the design of public spaces, uh, as we've seen in, uh, in Colombo, militate against social exclusion and resulting frustration spilling over into violence? What can be done to fully grasp Sri Lanka's democratic potential post-war? We've seen what has happened over, since over the last 40 or, or 40 years. We've seen the absolute uh, futility that uh, the amendments to the constitution has, uh, has come up with. Uh, it's led to pretty much a very flawed building. Um, I think that one thing that came to my mind when I was uh, going through this was that we uh, seem to be blind in a dark room looking for a black cat and you know, we just keep on doing so. It's, it's quite an, a good opportunity for us to, to, to kind of pause and rethink and, and look it forward. And of course, as San Santina said, youth are often said to be the architects of a better tomorrow, but what role had they in shaping the present and how do we look at the past and yet not be held hostage to it? So without, with that, I would like to perhaps invite Debbie to kick us off uh, with that uh, perspective, looking at, at the past but not being held hostage to it. Thank you, Amjad. Um, when I first spoke to Amjad, over the weekend, I told him I'm really not good at looking forward. I prefer to look back. So I'm happy that I've been given that opportunity now. Um, so when Sanjana emailed us and told us about this exhibition, um, I had a lot of questions, actually, as to why I was on the panel. But um, having gone through the brief, um, I'm actually very happy to be on this panel now, because I feel that we have a lot to discuss about space and um, how we use space and what we do with it. So my first question to myself, in a sense, was what's so important about space? And I needed to do a bit of digging, like what's the deal with space? Why do we care about how we design our space? And um, I kind of went back to my little Guruji. He's not little, but he's a big shot, but he's my Guruji on these issues, and that's uh, Nihal Pereira in his writings. Um, I highly recommend it if you all are interested in urban planning and architecture and architectural history. So Nihal Pereira basically tells us that space is really important uh, to the formation of society. And uh, what he says is, um, in any aspect of our lives, the way we live our lives or in the way we exercise power, space plays a role. And he kind of explains to us that we, space can have meaning, it can have a lot of meanings, or it can have no meaning at all. And all of this, in a sense, depends on spatial practices and how we read and interpret them. So I was thinking that we would first go back and look at the relationship that there is between architecture and memory. And in, from this aspect, I've gone to an architectural, his architectural historian called Swati Chatabdia, and she kind of really challenges us as to how we should think about our built environment. And she has basically two main points. One is she looks at the state, and she says that the state wants to dominate, so they are going to tell us how to read 
read our space. They're going to construct it in a way that is favorable to them. And the second thing she talks about is non-state actors and how they have to negotiate with this space that the state dominate, dominates. And they do this in different ways. For example, through activism, through rebellion, uh, through different ways, but those ways are generally not very powerful. They happen uh, in episodes, and non-state actors tend to lack the resources that the state has. So uh, with regards to the first point about how the state dominates and kind of carves out our space, I thought we'd go back a couple of hundred years and we'd look at Colombo in the early 19th century, Colombo as a colonial city under the British. And that's where I chose uh, this image, uh, which is from um, James Cordiner's book. And it basically shows us three uh, principal zones. Um, we first have the fort, which we all kind of understand what the Colombo fort is, but there are no walls now. At that time, there were walls. Then we have the peta, and finally, we have the outer peta. And what the British did during the colonial period was they made the fort completely uh, their, their zone, their space. It was a British ethnic compound. And according to um, a writer called Percival, he says in 1803 that they absolutely didn't allow any huts, any native huts, to be built inside the fort. So that was their space. And they didn't even allow the descendants of the Portuguese and the Dutch, whom we call the burghers, to reside in the fort. They had to reside in the peta. And of course, the peta was not what it is today. It was quite a residential area, but they weren't allowed to reside in the fort. And as a result of these descendants of, these, of the Portuguese and the Dutch residing in the peta, they kind of pushed everyone who wasn't in that category into the outer peta. And that's where, in general, the Moors were residing at the time, the Tamils, uh, and other ethnic groups. So, actually, what the British did was, uh, it was a very pronounced uh, system of cultural and spatial apartheid. And I know today, when we go and we look at the fort and the peta, we tend to gloss all, over all of this, but because it's not in our collective memory as well. But this is the way the British ruled the colonial city, and this represented their political authority and their economic prosperity. So if you lived at the time, you would understand what these dif the way that your space was organized, you would understand what it meant to you and what it represented to you. So that was just, that's just a look at space on a map in a sense. When we look at the buildings that they built as well, um, and I chose the Colombo Museum, which was built in 1877. So now we've kind of moved out of the early 19th century. We're coming towards the end of the 19th century. And it's very interesting, this building, because it's built in sort of like Georgian architecture in the middle of Colombo, Sri Lanka, very far away from England. And what it's actually doing is housing Sri Lankan culture, sort of Sri Lanka's dead, past glorious culture, and it's done within this facade, uh, which is very British, very European, and they're kind of telling the people who come there, whether it's the British or the tourists or the locals, that this was your past, 
and this is how you should view it. So they sort of assign meaning to it. It was your authentic past, it was your pure past, but it's no longer there, and we are kind of the guardians of this past. So it's interesting, not only the structure of the building, but how they use the space as well. So um, when we look back at the British and the way in which the colonial city was run, uh, we realized that they kept people separate. So there was a form of uh, cultural apartheid, there was spatial apartheid, but they also um, kind of gave meaning which people had to uh, take on or they had to accept. Or, of course, they had the choice of contesting it. And I'm not going to go into it too much, but we know that uh, elites, local elites, did also mimic the British, but they also uh, were able to move into the colonial city and indigenize it in their own ways. So for example, colonial Ceylonese elites would perhaps build like massive houses, uh, which looked like something that came out of England and had nothing to do with Sri Lanka. But at the same time, they would be practicing their rituals, their practices in those houses, appropriating the space in the way that they knew it. So it was a bit of an issue. It could have become like an issue for the, the colonizer. Uh, and it's a way, in a sense, in which the elites contested the space that they were given and the space that they were allowed to operate in. So there's a lot to be said about this. I'm not going to go into it too much. Um, but even at the time, by the late 1880s, Colombo was started to create like little migrant enclaves, and you see Vellavatta in 1880 uh, being kind of a place where all the Tamils congregated. Uh, Cinnamon Gardens, the place where people with money congregated. So there was, it was now it ceased to only just be, when the walls of the fort came down, it ceased to just be about ethnicity, and it started to be about income, uh, class, uh, etc., which you see today in the city as well. So that's uh, something that was interesting about the colonial period. Uh, I also just want to briefly talk about Chatabdia's second point, which is how non-staked actors negotiate their space. And um, I thought this was an interesting um, uh, place to start. Um, some of you may know, I know Sanjana has written about it, the artist himself, Jagat Veerasinghe, has written about this extensively. Uh, in 1994, the People's Alliance government commissioned Jagat Veerasinghe to create uh, the Ahin Sakayage Aramaya, which is the Shrine of the Innocents, basically to remember a massacre that happened in Ambilipitiya uh, uh, during the JVP period, a massacre of 33 students. So this shrine was, in a sense, commissioned by the state, but the artist, according to his account, contested a lot of the things that he was being told to do as well. And he carved out a space in which the families um, of those who were massacred could also be involved in this shrine. And they decided instead of having it at Ambilipitiya, they were going to move it to Batramulla near the parliament. And in 2012, this shrine was demolished, I think, in January. Uh, as part of Colombo's beautification project. And of course, you'll possibly know that the chief architect of all of that was the former defense secretary, Gotabir Rajapaksa. And uh, initially, it was replaced by the Dieta Uyana Park. And after that, uh, the park played host to this, the good market. And I found that this was very interesting. The, 
slogan under which the good market runs is good for the planet, good for the country, good for you. And uh, if you go to defense.lk, what they say is, not only does the good market sell good food, it will also practice good market practices. So a uh, lot of things that we perhaps don't really question or we don't have a problem with, but this is the way in which space is being appropriated. Uh, this is also the way in which non-state actors are sometimes moved out of the spaces uh, that they did occupy. And a lot of this happens the way in which space is used and meaning is given is it happens with our consent. Because we think that we should have a beautiful city, it should be a slum-free city, we don't have any issues with that. And as a result, we are actually part of this process and we consent to the way in which space is used. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to go any further with that. I'll stop here. Yeah. Thank you very much, Debbie. A fascinating uh, start to actually setting the stage. And I think this really um, puts the question that actually in, we have not departed from the period of the colonial period where the elites have kind of taken over uh, what, the, what the colonial um, uh, occupiers were doing. And um, so it's quite interesting that even now we have the same perspective that uh, we need to have a beautiful city, we need to appropriate things according to our culture, but we're not willing to understand the underlying um, consequences of, of that. Um, I, I think I, when we were talking, I was remarking to you how people were, people I've spoken to um, were quite critical of the previous government, but always saying, but you know what, we can go for a walk on golf face, it's beautiful. You know, the road, the drive now down Gaul Road is superb. I can do it in less than 10 minutes, you know, because it's, it's one way. So it's that dichotomy that, that we have. Um, and that's something there. That I think that uh, hopefully we will, we will, we will raise uh, during the conversations. Can I, in the interests of being balanced in terms of gender, so I'm going to now uh, go all the way across to Senel. Um, and then uh, Senel... It's on, it's on. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, thanks again, uh, Sanjana, for having me here. Thanks, Amjad and, and Debbie and the rest of uh, you guys in the panel as well. When Sanjana first sent me the email and there was a brief explanation of what this whole thing is going to be, it didn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, but when I came today and listened to Sanjana, I was, I was fascinated. It's, um, it's if you guys didn't have have um, the pleasure of listening, listening to the whole thing being exp explained. Perhaps the, the book would help because um, I, was, I was absolutely fascinated. Um, so once again, thanks for um, having me. Um, I also admire a lot of the work that everyone here does as well. Um, it's uh, particularly challenging because um, Debbie and I, Debbie's my senior in university, <clears throat> and she used to coach us in debating. And it's almost like now I have to... Um, to practice some of those things she uh, made us do at debating um, practice. Um, anyway, I, my, my, my intervention is a lot more about youth, because uh, that's a lot of what the work that I've done and less about space, but I'll also try and uh, address some of that as well. Um, one of the comments I really wanted to make was that, was that constantly the attitude of the Sri Lankan state towards young people, towards youth, has been suppressive, has been that young people are a challenge, they're the troublemakers, they're radical, and so on. And it's reflected in, in the kind of projects that they've done for young people, but also in terms of the policies that are in place on young people. This is largely because 
a lot of the policies that came on youth in Sri Lanka were a response to a lot of the insurrections that happened in the 70s and the 80s and so on. So a lot of the policies that are on young people are responses to challenges of, or such, as, um, such as the insurrections. This is why we have a National Youth Services Council. Most countries have a National Youth Council which represents the voices of young people. Sri Lanka has a National Youth Services Council, so we, the Youth Services Council uh, the, main, the main goal is service delivery, so to, to give, almost like give carrots to young people and then pacify them almost uh, and stop them from protesting and so on. And this is not just in practice, but also if you look at the policies that are in place, they are from the 70s and 80s as a response uh, to, to the protests and the, the, the basically a response to the insurrection and so on. So it's there in, also in theory and also um, in terms of, of practice. This is also reflected in the way a lot of people look at university student movements. Uh, a lot of the time when there are protests and so on, uh, and when you university student unions uh, demand for rights and so on, it's almost always uh, seen as, as these young people are, are being educated from my tax rupees, they are not studying, they need to be studying and get jobs and contribute to the economy, they shouldn't be protesting and so on. Uh, I'm not 100% I'm not um, defending, I, I wouldn't defend everything that the student union does. There are inherent flaws in that system uh, as well. For example, it's, it, the student union system itself is very, uh, is very disrespectful and discouraging of divergent views. For example, I wouldn't be able to form in the Faculty of Arts a student union on, liber of, for example, on, on capitalist student union. It, it will most certainly, most student unions in the, in the, I, I, I wouldn't form a capitalist student union, that's not how I feel about a lot of things, but, but, but the point I was trying to make was that they're discouraging to a lot of different ways of thinking. Uh, it's very patriarchal at the Faculty of Arts. Also, as particularly, there's about 95% student uh, females, but if you look at the student union, it's almost all male. Um, it's also politicized, they ragged us, so I don't defend. You know, I don't defend a lot of things that they do, but uh, but the problem I see is that that there are people, members of the public, are constantly critical of student unions, and and it shouldn't be. It's seen as something that's not done. It's seen as something uh, that's almost like almost like a beggars can't be choosers kind of attitude because they are being paid for for their education and they don't need uh, to engage in that kind of thing. Um, and the other point I also wanted to make was that whether it was a conflict, whether it was the conflict in Sri Lanka, whether it was the insurrections, or even a lot of people describe the revolution, uh, what happened on the 8th of January as a revolution. And in a lot of these events, young people paid a big role, right? whether it was the insurrection, whether it was the war, if you look at the demographics of the armed forces, if you look at the demographics of the Tamil Tigers, if you look at the JVP insurrection, and even a lot of the work that was done with the January 8th, young people did a lot of work and politicians recognized this as well. But when it comes to the post-election, post-war period, young people are constantly not engaged in that discussion. So if there's a discussion about ceasefire, if there's a discussion about post-war accountability, if there's a discussion about, for example, new constitution and so on, young people are not engaged um, in these discussions. Um, particularly on the January 8th, uh, a few colleagues and I did, did the math. Um, the average age of the Sri Lankan cabinet is 55. Um, and, and that's almost retirement age, almost retirement age, and I feel like... Um, and I feel like that's becoming the norm. Um, and I wanted to, um, please stop me if I'm uh, going over time. I just wanted to make a few quick 
uh, other few quick comments. Uh, one was uh, the one about um, the death penalty. There's a conversation that's happening right now about the death penalty, which I think is on the one hand positive that people are reacting to sexual violence. People are taking to the streets and saying, no, we need to address this. This is not something that would have happened a while back. We're at least having a national conversation about sexual violence. But I feel like it's happening about all the wrong reasons. And, and this is part of the reason why I wouldn't necessarily say that it's, uh, it's the fault of a lot of these people, because they're angry and they're responding to something that happened. I think it's a problem with the way we were educated and socialized. Also, we were constantly growing up, we were exposed to a lot of violence and so on, so we are necessarily see, we, we're used to seeing violence as a solution to a lot of the problems. Uh, since we're also talking about constitution, I think uh, Sri Lanka, for good or right, good or wrong reasons, our state is supposed to um, supposed to foster Buddhism. Supposed to, um, and I feel like if uh, if a chapter two of the constitution was was drawn like this, the death penalty would be a dent in that because the death penalty's concern is 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 in principle against the the philosophy of Buddhism, which the state is somehow supposed to propagate and is supposed to not just propagate but also foster. And that foster is a vague term, but foster reminds me of fostering children, so almost like like foster parents. It's almost like the role of a parent. And I feel like like the state would be a very bad parent in fostering Buddhism if it does that. Um, so on that note, I'd like to um, end my comments. Um, Basically, in terms of proposals, just, I just wanted to uh, suggest that if there is a discussion about a new constitution, if there's a discussion about post-war accountability, it's important that young people are a part of this conversation, not just as, as people who would, for example, be invited for one consultation or with young people and so on, but, but engaged constantly, because we played, a, as young people, we played a big role in the conflict, uh, not just as witnesses, but people who actively took part in that conflict. I'm talking about the young, young people population in general, so I think it's important that we have a role in that discussion table. Thank you. Thanks, Sanal. Um, we're looking at more of an of a engaged role for, uh, for young people. I think we'll do the clapping at the end, otherwise this is going <laughs> to... Can I, can I invite Rookie now to kind of give your thoughts into... Do you have a mic? Uh-huh. Uh, thank you for inviting me to Sanjana, and uh, thank you for all of you to, for being here. Uh, I'll start by saying that uh, I think that uh, we in Sri Lanka are at a transitional moment now. Uh, in maybe I'll outline three transitions. One is I think we are transitioning from war to a situation where there is no war, but where there is still conflict and tensions, and we are trying to overcome them. And this requires, I think, uh, things that are mentioned here particularly, addressing root causes, uh, particularly constitutionally. Uh, but it will also require uh, addressing consequences of the war, issues like uh, people who have disappeared, land that has been occupied illegally by the military, uh, properties that have been destroyed, uh, people who have been detained for long years. So these are all consequences that will also have to be addressed in transitioning from war to a situation of more peace, which we haven't achieved quite yet. The, the second transition is uh, what I would call transition from authoritarianism, uh, dictatorship, or at least at the minimum semi-dictatorship, to a more uh, form of governance that is democratic. And again, I think we are just at the beginning stage of that. We started on that path, I think, on 8th of January, and maybe that was uh, reaffirmed to some extent again on uh, 17th of August. And we still have a long way to go in that as well. But there is also a third transition, which is slightly more personal and slightly more uh, community-oriented for me, uh, 
that is i think we also are at a moment of uh, uh, what i would call a transition of our moral and consciousness or our political consciousness as people and i think this has been a huge problem in regard to the other two transitions as well because for far too long uh, many of us was ready to be silent silent when something bad was done to us to me or silent when something bad was done to our neighbor our brother or sister whether they are our physical neighbor or whether they are our neighbor from far away from that i think uh, silence uh, fear was a major cause of it many of us were scared and many people have told me this and i know generally i was also scared uh, at many times uh, but i think we are at a stage that we are trying to transition from that to another phase from silence to a stage where we are ready to express our outrage about certain things and where we are ready to share our perspectives on what should be and what should happen and i think that transition that third transition is very very important and that is the transition i think that will strengthen the other two transitions and without that third transition i don't think we can move forward very much so when we look at the future reforming the future how we relate to each other our structures laws our constitution i think that transition from one of silence and fear to one of out to be able to resist to defy and to express ourselves freely and fearlessly is very important transition a second thing that i would like to talk about is that many of the issues uh, that we talk about are very personal but there's also a strong political or legal dimension to it i think uh, during the guided tour you know i sanjana mentioned a couple of times about the the ground of the architect that the building will depend on the ground so i think the the legal political structures are, are very much dependent on the very personal issues and i want to cite examples from my experience no so what would the reconciliation or what would good governance mean to a mother whose son has disappeared uh, what would this constitution or constitutional changes mean to someone who is detained for 19 years without having the case concluded what would this mean to a community whose historical and traditional land has been occupied for many years illegally by the military so i think this is a kind of a test for us to think at political and legal reform what would it actually mean in a very personal sense in a very human sense and i want to move on in that light itself to remembrance uh, remembrance is something that has been very uh, close to my heart in many ways and i have written and talked about it and i want to pick a few points from uh, a talk that i gave in jaffna uh, a couple of months back no uh, i think sri lanka has a history of remembering if we pay close attention to many dimensions we have tried to remember what has happened in the past no and i have given examples of uh, for example the jvp tries to remember what happened in 1971 and nine, late 1980s through their no in uh, april ilma samarua and there's another one in november so these commemorations the ltt also try to remember their own cadres in various ways through various structures to cemeteries monuments etc and of course the sri lankan military with the sri lankan government has also tried to remember through their own structures through their own monuments through their own activities like remembrance day or victory parade so we do have a history of remembering uh, but in this context of remembering 
the three that I mentioned by three major actors. Ordinary people, people who have suffered, victims and their families have also tried to remember the tragedies. So if you go to Batiklo, uh, people in Satrakondan have tried to remember what happened in that massacre that happened, where hundreds were killed. Now, people in, uh, who are around the Katankudi Mosque try to remember the attack on the Katankudi Mosque by the LTT, I think in 1990, by listing out the names of people who were killed and keeping intact the bullet holes. Uh, people all in a village called Vankale in Mena try to remember a priest who was killed because that priest was deeply involved in trying to protect the civilians, particularly from the army. And despite uh, very clear eyewitness accounts that priest was killed by the army, it's still been denied and his body was still not found. But that memory still lingers on where the community comes together every 6th of January to remember that priest. In near the airport uh, in Colombo, uh, close to Colombo, there's a monument for disappeared people who disappeared in the late 1980s. So it's still there. So it's one of the few monuments for disappeared people that's there. So we do have a strong history of trying to remember in a variety of ways. And at a very, very personal level, if we go into houses of people, particularly in the north that I witnessed, in many houses, almost in every house, there's a photograph of someone who was killed in that family. And sometimes there's garlands, sometimes there's lambs. So we have a very strong history of remembrance. But unfortunately, what we have gone through is a series of obstructions to these remembrances. And some of them has been in the very physical form where those have been destroyed. And I think uh, Devi put up one example, but there are many such examples in the north and the east in particular, along in the, with the other, side, other parts of the country. But there have also been threats and intimidations of people who try to build up these remembrance events or organize events. Even under this good governance as such, in May this year, when people try to remember uh, their brothers and sisters who were killed in Mulliwaikal, in Kilnochi, there were obstructions, there were threats. There was still military hovering around trying to obstruct remembrance. So I think that our challenge is to get over uh, this phase of obstructions and threats and intimidations to remembrance and try to go back to our tradition of trying to remember. And I think a major challenge uh, in trying to remember is how we remember and who we remember. For example, can we glorify certain people in the process of remembering. For example, the LTT cadres, or even our mil the military, the army or the navy or the air force. Their families, their mothers, their brothers and sisters also would like to remember their sons and daughters. But other mothers and other, son other brothers and sisters will be grieving what they did, the suffering they had caused. So how do we remember, I think, is a big challenge in terms of perpetrators and oppressors and victims and whether we should remember some and whether we should not remember some. And I think that's a challenge that there are no easy answers, but that's something that we should try to endeavor to address, I think, in this process of moving forward. And lastly, uh, I want to mention something that is very much in the news uh, these days, but also because it's something that I've been engaged with and there are very opposing views, and that is the, the UN report on allegations of war crimes in Sri Lanka. Uh, and I think uh, the focus of this report uh, so far has been the idea that people who have done wrong things or people who are responsible for atrocities needs to be punished. 
and whether they should be punished domestically or whether they should be punished internationally through uh, the International Criminal Court or whether they should be punished uh, through a uh, H word. No, now we have a new word for the F word and the G word. We have H word with, through a hybrid mechanism. No? Uh, and I think that's a very important part, something that we'll have to grapple with. And I think in that context, what we are faced with is we are a very strong uh, number of Tamil people don't believe in anything domestic anything that is centered around Colombo. So they prefer something that is strongly international, fully international or at least strongly international. But vast majority of uh, Sinhalese people uh, don't believe in anything international. They think that this is a conspiracy by the Western powers or people with dollars or euros and that, no, that we should not go along that path at all. So how to uh, treat a path that satisfies the the expectations of all these communities. And that's a big challenge. But I think an even bigger challenge is to lose sight of the overall uh, report of the UN, which does not deal only with punishments and prosecutions. And I think the report is a very good tool uh, for us to reflect on uh, what we have done to each other and what we have been silent about and how we have reacted to various things at various points. And I think if we lose sight of that value of the UN report, it will be a great tragedy. If you focus only on prosecutions and punishments, I think it will be a great tragedy. So I think this is a challenge that I think uh, that we face on how to deal with a report that is essentially the stories of our brothers and sisters. It essentially talks about what has happened to Sri Lankan people. And it is a story told by Sri Lankan people, maybe written by some foreigners. And conclusions and recommendations are by some foreigners. No? But the story is ours. So how do we deal with the story, whether we throw it out, or whether we discard it totally, or whether we take it into serious account and move forward, is, I think, is a challenge that we all face. So I'll stop uh, my remarks for now. Thank you Thanks. very much, uh, Rookie. Can I now hand over to Crystal for, to round us up? Thank you, Amjad. Uh, first of all, I should thank Sanjana for inviting me for this panel. Again, uh, I come from neither an architectural nor a legal background, but I'm sure as glad that I'm here today. I mean, this attempt uh, to look at the, uh, the power structure and the political intrigues of Sri Lanka, it's quite amazing and fascinating, as everyone has said. So being a youth, uh, activist, uh, I would like to talk about few areas, uh, points from here and there actually. So to start off with designing the future, keeping the topic in line, first thing I would like to talk about is the inclusiveness. As we all know, Sri Lanka just ended uh, a brutal war, uh, a three-decade-old uh, three one, by the way, and um, uh, what we as citizens, after the war, we again had to face a decade of corruption, greed for power. Of course, there was development. So we as uh, Sri Lankans, as citizens, we were juggling with war and corruption. Finally, in my opinion, Sri Lanka right now is at its equilibrium, where all forces, powers towards it, is at balance. So this is this right moment for us to renew, to design, to grow, sustain, to develop. Um, speaking about inclusiveness, um, let me draw your attention towards a classic example that I came across. Uh, one of the most capitalistic countries in the world today with a 17 million population. Uh, how they brought in inclusiveness through architecture and modern designs and urban development, that is the Netherlands. 
um, after the war ended in the Netherlands, the policymakers and the leaders came together uh, deciding how they could explore the ways of developing their country. And one way they realized was the concept of the car how the car would be the modern transport, uh, the method of transportation for the Netherlands. And they built up the roads, the highways, the expansions took place. Eventually what they realized was the, the amount of traffic that they had to face due to the number of vehicles that was imported to the country. And the other thing was the number of uh, accidents that they had to face, especially of the kids. So looking at this concept, uh, what they changed was they brought in the idea of the cyclist. How today Amsterdam has become the capital of cyclists. This is the most simplest way I could show you the power of modern architecture, urban development, how they brought in inclusiveness, whether you come from the rich or the poor, or white or black, whether you have a Ferrari or you drive a Toyota, at, at the moment, when you're on the road, you're a cyclist. You're equal as everyone. So this is the power of architecture and urban development. And um, in the other context, when I had to speak about inclusiveness, one other thing is something really dear to me that is about women. Even today, we talk about the parliament. We talk about what is the representation there. And then we ask, OK, there is a representation. but. Out of that, how many are coming from political backgrounds and how many are not? How many are actually given the place because they deserve it? This is a question that we have to keep on asking ourselves. It, it's the same with the corporate world as well. I mean, I looked into this and I analyzed, there's always two sides for the story. One could be the structural impediments or the barriers that the women face when they try to reach the top. Or it could be that the women do not simply desire to reach the top due to cultural or non-cultural reasons. So just imagine if we increase our labor force, the women labor force, by 3 to 5%, how much we would be adding into productivity, how much we'd be bringing into our GDP. So these are the things that we have to talk about when it comes to inclusiveness. The next point I would like to discuss about is the economic development in a very specific area that is on tourism. After the war, post-war, the development of Sri Lanka, in my opinion, did not happen as fast as it should be. And even if it did, it did not focus on the areas that it should have. Why do I say this? Sri Lanka should, could have been a thriving destination for international tourism Yet, we have become a homestay for backpackers today. To become Maldives or Thailand or to be Indonesia, we will have to revive and rebrand tourism today. Why is this? Are we so arrogant to not to look into the avenues that are opened up? We see hotels coming up like mushrooms everywhere, and the price of it is quite expensive. Why aren't we thinking of these little things? Then the idea of accessible tourism. This is one concept that is generating revenue, million dollar revenue, all around the world. Yet again, Sri Lankans are not even considering it. In 2010, when they released the statistics, the data for tourism, more than 50% was uh, 
tourists were from uh, more than 45 years of age, which means most of them would have been senior citizens. Why? They have the time, they have the money, they need to spend their life lavishly and spend as much as they want. But their main requirement is accessibility. Why haven't we answered this question? So this is something that we should look upon in the years to come if we need to develop and to thrive as a destination for tourism. The next point I would like to talk about is the youth's involvement and about policy making. Once again, I do not understand the full structure of uh, architecture or how the buildings are made, but one thing I understand is there are three elements that are quite important. The roof, the pillars, and the foundation. And if we talk about the parliamentary system or any system that we look at, these are important. So when I look at the parliament today, so I look, it, look into it as, maybe it's different from what Sanjana have them uh, actually depict here, but for me, the executive presidency comes as the roof, and the, ministry, uh, the ministries that are around comes as the pillar. And the most important thing, the utmost important thing is a foundation. And I think of it as the general public. And that was well defined. That was a true testimony on the 8th of January, how the public came together and brought down the mighty. So that is one example. And when it's come for the youth's involvement, one thing I realized was youth are always in the periphery. I don't know why we've not been given the chance to come to the center and play with the big players there. I think that's one thing that we had to really look into. And finally, I would like to talk about a bit of reconciliation. Again, there's no easy answer or a quick answer, or it's not an excuse for any sort of impunity, but reconciliation is important. That the past that was divided, we have to bring the future as a shared method. The divided past to become the shared future we had to reconcile, we had to integrate. And this is why reconciliation plays a major role today. Um, while talking about that, it is also funny how during Eid, how I would want to eat someone's biryani, but still I would go talk to my people as terrorists. How during Christmas I would want to eat Christmas cake, still talk about my people as vultures or traitors how I would want to enjoy a crab curry from Jaffna, still I would think of my people as traitors and deprive them from their rights. But we are not that bad. What I always think is, when it's come for a cricket match, we always come under one flag, cheer for our team, and that's there. So I don't think we are that bad after all. So until the odds are on our side, let's keep on fighting. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, and thank you all uh, for your insights. Uh, let me maybe start off the conversation a little bit, use my moderate's prerogative, and then I'll open up the floor uh, to, to people. Um, Sanel, I'm, I'm was struck by what you were saying about the transition that took place in, uh, in, in January. Um, and one of the questions that's been in my mind is, how, what was the transition about? Was it, and this goes back to perhaps something that, that, that Rookie mentioned in his three transitions. Um, are we, did we really look at a transition that went from author authoritarianism to kind of some sort of democracy, good governance? Or was it something else? Because in the, in the conversation, I've not yet heard people really analyzing 
the way forward in terms of reconciliation, in terms of these things. And, the, and I feel that like the conversation that the youth, like you mentioned, has, has not been part of that, has not been part of the conversation, which is surprising because over the last two years or so, Sri Lanka at least played a huge role in mobilizing and galvanizing youth in globally. I mean, you had two or three big forums that brought youth to the country. So what, what has happened in terms of that, that disconnect with, with the youth? Um, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so bold as to say that the transition has been great and everything's, everything's super good now. But I would say that we are correcting a lot of the, we have corrected some of the mistakes that, have, that, that we've done in the past. And I think that's definitely a positive sign. I wouldn't say that, and I would still, I would still argue that there are, there are lots of things that need, need to change, but I would still, I would still, I'd still very firmly believe that, that a lot of the mistakes that were done in the past, some of the mistakes that were done in the past are being corrected, and that's definitely um, a positive sign. Of course, there are, there are things that, that, are, that are big turnoffs, there are things that are big, that, 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 that throw us out. But it's important to sometimes remember that, that it's, that, that in the bigger picture, things have transitioned for good. Uh, like some of my friends, for example, um, a lot of the times when, when, when little things go, for example, things happen. For example, when, when, um, when ministerial portfolios were offered to, um, offered to people who were rejected by the public and so on, a lot of people would make a big outcry and question the, question the whole thing, and it's definitely very um, frustrating when things like that happen. But it's also important to remember that in the bigger scheme of things, uh, the problems that we might have as as a members of the as as a public may have maybe of a different uh, level altogether. Um, for example, what 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 people say is when there are big transitions like the one that may have happened on the 8th of January, expectations go up. So our expectations as a public may be higher. And then when there's a big uh, then the, and then then the, the expectations keep going up and there's a small dent, then the frustration that we might express and the anger we might express as a result of that may be bigger than the, the anger that we may have had before uh, the transition itself. But of course, um, I don't think that's a very good answer that I gave you. But I think in general, we've, I feel like we've, be, we've uh, corrected some of the mistakes that have happened. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, that things uh, as good as they could be. Great. Um, Roki, uh, I liked uh, your, the third transition. I think that also speaks very closely to, to my personal kind of understanding, this thing of so the moral and political consciousness. And I feel like that, I feel that we're talking about two parallel processes here. We're talking about changing the, the architecture of the buildings, but also as Sanjana has repeatedly told us is that the ground itself is very uncertain, it's, it's, it's eroding. And so I think that there's a process of firming, up, firming that up or moving to, to another ground. How do we reconcile the two from the, that third transition? Because I think that, and who plays that role, in your opinion, in, in that? Well, I think the, the structural transitions, whether it's legal, political reform, will depend a lot on uh, that third transition for me, you know, uh, the outrage that we are able to uh, express. I think the 18th Amendment happened because simply there was not enough outrage. There was, there was outrage, but very, very little, considering the damage it was doing to, do to our lives. You know? And I think many things uh, uh, went ahead, like disappearances, land grabbing, they all went ahead because there was no moral, political consciousness among, among people. 
for whatever reason. Some people thought these things are okay to happen. Some people thought we are too scared to get involved. So I think for anything structural, political, legal to change, that uh, moral consciousness, that moral outrage, the desire to resist and to defy and to propose alternatives, different things, and to stand by them is absolutely crucial. And I think we are still moving a little bit in that direction. And I think if I go back to the first two things I said, I think on the front of transitioning from authoritarianism and dictatorship to a more democratic form of governance, I think we are moving forward. We made some progress. But in transitioning from war and conflict to a situation of real, genuine peace, I think we made very, very little progress in the last eight months. In fact, we even made some backward steps, like, for example, appointing very senior military officers who are alleged to have been responsible for very serious crimes, like war crimes, by giving them promotions. That is not really a positive transition towards from war and conflict to a situation of peace. So I think on that front, we are lagging behind. And I think it is on that front where our moral consciousness, our political consciousness, is far lacking. And I am speaking by gen generally as Sri Lankans, not of a particular community. Um, I was just thinking, Debbie, when you were speaking, like, uh, and we, we look at we're close to the uh, arcade Independence Square, and uh, you know, we, we, we all appreciate this nice colonial building that uh, has, is there's preserved the Dutch hospital. You know, it's a nice colonial. We're not having the, the high-rise buildings that are coming up and thing. But within that, there is a, an intrinsic acceptance of what the colonial period brought and, and what, and, but we seem to have forgotten this. And my fear is that particularly now with the likes of social media, and I think I'm betraying my age when I say the young people, but, but I think that there is an increasing difficulty in retaining memory. Um, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I remember close um, speaking to someone just a few months ago who was talking about the change that happened in January. And he said, you know, to be honest, we, I've had this before. We had this feeling in 1994. And, uh, you know, and I remember talking with a, a, lot of, a couple of my colleagues, and they just looked at me blankly, saying, we weren't even born in 1994. So, you know, what, 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 are, you, what are you talking about, right? So... How do we ensure that that type of memory is retained and actually we, we, we utilize it? And how do we understand that, you know, the nice building that everyone goes and takes photographs on, in, you know, actually has a sp specific implication on our own history? I mean, it was actually, a, you know, it was a mental hospital, right? And yet we surprisingly... Revere it now. So, uh, how do we, and as a teacher, or supposed teacher, as you said in your bio, bio that you sent me, how do we ensure that that memory is kind of retained? Um, yeah, this issue of remembrance and memory, like what Rookie was saying, I, I find it very interesting, and um, it's a really complex issue. Not. What, Sri Lanka is not the only country dealing with it, uh, obviously. Germany is constantly still grappling with it even 60 years after World War II. So we can actually learn a lot from them. And looking at some of their stories, something that I really liked that one of their artists had said was he doesn't want a final solution memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe. He doesn't want it to be created 
in Germany. Because he thinks the moment you create a monument like that, the moment you create a space like that, you're going to put a cap on the memory. And you're going to say, this is what it stands for, this is what it means. And you're kind of, actually what you're doing at the end of the day with some of these monuments, some of these spaces, I, I mean, it's a complex issue, but what you're doing is you're taking the burden of each one of us individuals here on the panel, in the audience, from taking the effort to remember, and you're sort of casting it onto that monument or that space, and you're saying, uh, okay, this will remember for you, this is the issue that happened. Now, if there's a little plaque there, if it just gives one singular meaning, you're sort of saying, okay, remember according to that. And the burden is kind of taken off us to try to remember. Now, like Ruki was saying, remembrance is a massive issue. Like, who do we remember? How do we remember them? I think we've really gone about it the wrong way. Uh, for example, when uh, LTT graves in the north were demolished, uh, for example, in 2010 at Kopai, I think that uh, what happened there was um, there is an image, if you want, we can use it. We don't have to, but actually it might be good to use it. The LTT kind of moved away from traditional Hindu, uh, Hindu ritual of, uh, of death, where you know they would cremate the body. And instead they went, it was a very westernized version. It was very elaborate uh, cemetery structures. Um, a lot of effort was put into it. But the good thing about this is that people were able to come here and mourn. But I know it's so problematic in Sri Lanka. Like, it's, you're, you're, expected to, uh, you're expected to think that families of the LTTE are not allowed to mourn. So uh, nobody really made a massive fuss. I think Ground Views was uh, the only website that translated the Udayan newspaper's article about how this Kopai Cemetery was thereafter uh, made into a, a, a military headquarters with which um, the army commander Jagat Jayasuriya opened in 2011. And uh, very few people questioned the desecration of this space. And what happens is, and I think Michael Roberts brings this out, what happens at the end of the day is it makes the people who have been left behind much more embittered than if you had allowed the space to remain. So I know remembrance is a complex issue and uh, it's not something that we can easily uh, give easy answers to. But one thing I felt that we can learn from uh, countries like Germany, which are constantly talking about it, what, what they are saying over there is, let's continue the debate on how to remember, because when this debate continues, you never put a cap on it. You never try to say, okay, it's this, this is a singular meaning attached to it. Instead, you allow every generation to constantly debate with each other as to how remembrance should take place. And I also think in remembrance, if possible, the burden should be on us as individuals to remember. We should make the effort to remember and we shouldn't just have designated spaces uh, where we go in and uh, we say, oh, this is what it stands for, let's not question it. Um, I, I don't know if this is a but I, I want to say this because I watched it two days ago or yesterday. Uh, Yamu has released a video of, uh, it's very interesting and I like it. It's, they're going to do walks of, through Colombo 1 to Colombo 15. And I think they've just started with Colombo 1. Did anyone 
see that, yeah? So uh, they go around like Colombo One, which is the central, which is basically the fort, and they're telling you about all these buildings and what it was. And it's interesting, and it's nice, and it's interactive, and I really like it. I think it should be out there. People should be able to access it. But again, um, if you don't question even videos like that, if you don't question narratives like that, you're going to accept that that's all that it stands for. That's what that building is. There's nothing beyond it. Um, I think in Sri Lanka, um, as in other parts of the world, normal, ordinary spaces may have been used for torture, may have been used for abductions, and what has happened is those spaces are part of our everyday life, but we never question the other side of it or the other things that happened. So um, when we see these videos, I think we should enjoy them. I'm not against them. I think it's great that they're doing it. Uh, but at the same time, it kind of tells us how to think. And uh, we don't take the burden on ourselves to question what happened in that space or what's the story there, or what's the memory. Sorry, that's a little bit of a long answer. Um, thank you. I think I think you're I think you're right. I mean, I you know I kind of whenever friends come from outside of outside Sri Lanka and they come to visit and I do a little tour of Colombo, uh, I always make a point to kind of say, look, this is where this this thing happened. There was a there was a bomb attack here. There was something here. There was something here. Because for me, it makes it it makes this the city part of that's part of our narrative that's part of our history that's part of our memory and we should remember that we should you know all that's now been 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 beautified so i i do think that that's something that we 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 do need to not i don't want to say don't be proud of but we should we should be it should be part of us we should we should understand that and you know we should understand the traumas of 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 the city so i think that's useful crystal just lastly before i open it out um debbie talked about keeping this debate alive how can we ensure spaces for young activists, youth, to have this debate? Because it's very easy to buy into a narrative. Um, and one of the things that struck me, um, and maybe it has, the debate has, is the, for example, there has been, or there was, not a lot of debate about what happened uh, with the recent Coke. Uh, scandals, or there was, uh, maybe I, I wasn't part of it, but from what I knew, it wasn't as much as it, it was, and there was a little bit of, oh, let's do something, and oh, let's not. So how do we keep the debate going so that young, young and youth, youth are kept activated, kept part of the conversation? Because otherwise they'll buy into the story that this is a great building, and they won't actually question. So how do we ensure that there's avenues for this? Um. Well, in my opinion, to keep the debate going is actually to put it out there anyway, be it a negative or a positive thing. Because if, if you take on social media, especially on Twitter, it's a matter of a hashtag to create chaos or even happiness. That has happened. Um, so if you need to keep them on the debate, one tool, one method to use would be social media. Because even though the Sri Lankan penetration for um, network is three million, I'm sure out of the three million majority, the vast majority would be the youth. Everyone has a mobile phone, a smartphone. So this is one way that I think the simplest way of doing it. And um, the other thing is also to understand the diversification among them from where they come from and to understand, to create platforms that are um, culturally accepted and also tolerated. 
so that they don't feel out of the box. Like what? Uh, any? Um, okay. Uh, we'll, um, f for an example, let's take uh, the, the, the debate on as soon as the Colombo Arcade came up with uh, the Kama Sutra, how the food has been expensive and not and whatnot. So that story. So what people should understand is and what eventually they understood was whether we like it or not, that is one place. Again, regardless of where you are coming from, where you can enjoy the glamour, the beauty. Start from the starting point of, uh, as in from the entrance, going towards the joggers lane, up to the uh, renewed, um, the race course, all walks of lives coming together. That is the ultimate uh, goal of it. And the youth should understand that. And after a heat of debate, of throwing uh, comments and retweets and tweets at each other, finally, um, what they decided was, no, this is inclusiveness. Whether, whether we see it or not, that's what's happening. So that's one way of uh, keeping the debate going and bringing them in, I would okay. say. Thank you. Can I now open it up to members of the audience? Um, as Sanjana said, please raise, if you can raise your hands, and we wait for the mic to come. And it'll be good just to get a first name. So that, yes, there's a, there's a gentleman over here. And if it's just, is it a general question or a question to a specific person? Well, I mean, my question is to the, uh, 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 to the young person who brought up the issue about gender imbalance in our society. Uh, my, my question is, is, is that that's a very important issue. We have talked about this for a very long time. Do you believe that we should uh, 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 start from the top and uh, in the constitution write up that we have women-only seats specially reserved for, uh, uh, for MPs in the House of Co in, in Parliament and uh, also move on once we establish uh, women in the high echelons of our lives then at least it will set an example that uh, you know, women are playing a key role and they are playing a fantastic role and that might encourage a lot of other women to come forward and take part in the political uh, discussions and forums. Thank you. What we'll do is maybe take a couple of questions and then come back. Uh, yes, the gentleman over here. All right, thank you. Um, so, actually, my question is a free throw. Uh, anyone of the panel could answer. So, when we talk about uh, remembrance, actually, you know, it is said that the victors write the history. So, so far in the last 10 years, what we saw was like um, sort of twisting of what really happened to the sort of media, sort of to, to, to be encapsulated in media as uh, something really patriotic, something very uh, passionate for the nation's growth as a larger majority of Sinhalese. So when we talk about uh, how memories were serving the sort of uh, the future architecture of this whole system, what we could see is uh, there's a, I mean, we have all, all been like having allegiances, ideological biases and uh, all kinds of uh, personal favorites. So now, if the public, if the general public is having this kind of uh, biases, 
and this kind of uh, sort of misguided uh, kind of opinions, like uh, how as uh, the youth, as the responsible citizens of this country that you guys see to make this open and uh, give even the so-called losers a chance to sort of voice up and say, this is also a subtext of the whole story and you guys didn't know this. And that has happened in Holocaust and that has happened in many wars in, uh, in the world and uh, we know there are deliberate attempts of the US to recraft the history and sort of give the whole world a different version of their own. So likewise, I think we should prevent, at least as Sri Lanka, we should prevent this and really give meaning to the democracy instead of making it an oligarchy. So I want your say on this. Thank you. Thank you. Can we take one more question? And then, yes, gentleman over here, and then. Um, can I get uh, from each one of you, including the old guy? Um, Thank you. On the end there. Um, one point that you'd like to see in the Constitution in the new one. Each one of you. Just one point each, please. Okay. Good. Okay, so we'll, we'll start with the easy one first. Um, Sanel, and maybe Crystal can talk a little bit about the gender inequality. Um, so the one point I'd like to... Uh, you want to add start with one point or...? Oh, okay. So maybe I'll start with that and then go to the... Uh, can I comment a little bit on the gender question? Yeah, is, I okay. think best, yeah. <laughs> Up to you. Okay, maybe, uh, okay, maybe I'll start with the one um, about the gender question. I, I completely agree with you that, that the problem we have in terms in this country in terms of representation of women is, is huge uh, because currently we have 13 women in parliament. The previous parliament had the previous parliament also had 13 women, so there has been completely no increase uh, there at all. Um, so definitely, I agree with you that it needs to be top down, but it also needs to be bottom up in in certain ways as well. Like I said, in student unions, there are absolutely no women. Uh, so the, this question of representation is 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 reflected in different levels. So there are. And it's also, perhaps there are different ways of answering this. I believe you suggested maybe that there, could, there could be a quota and a certain number of seats allocated and say this is the number of seats that would be allocated to women. women. Yesterday I saw that the UMP has decided that in the local council elections, a certain percentage, I believe it was 20 or 25 or something like that, would be grant, nominations would be granted to women, which I think is positive. 25 is, is perhaps not enough, but we're starting somewhere, I guess. And look from, so that's definitely one way of looking at bottom up, so local councils, provincial councils, and so on. Another question I constantly see is that whenever women are also elected to parliament, people question their credentials. People say this woman is there in parliament because she's a celebrity. This woman is there in parliament because this one's this one. But we don't do that to men because there are lots of men who are there in parliament because they're someone, someone, because they're popular and so on. So I also believe, so I feel that that's also an expression of sexism when we say that this woman's there in parliament because she's a celebrity. Because there are also male celebrities that perhaps we don't question why they're in parliament as well. Uh, or we should question everyone equally. I, one, of, one of the two. Uh, the one about, um, the one thing I'd like to see in the parliament, I'd like the new constitution to have no references to religion. I think it's better than having reference to religion. I'd like to be a, a godless constitution, if at all. Um, okay, to answer uh, the gentleman's question there about women's inclusion, uh, one thing that I would suggest is for the parties 
to have a certain quota from the national list. That's one way that we can actually bring in more women into power and to the parliamentary system and also make certain allocations in their manifesto as to how they're going to br bring the women's concept, um, not just uh, in political terms, but bringing them into the economical aspect, the social aspect, and etc. Those are the two ways that I would think that would strongly work right now. Because, uh, because I see a lot of women out there struggling really hard to come into that level. I keep on telling my friends, if I need to get into politics, my first thing is change my name. Because with my name, I don't know how it's going to work. So things like that. Because I want these stigmas to be out. I want to, if I want to be there someday, there are certain changes that I would like to see. But for those changes to come in, first we have to lay the foundation, and that should come through our political leaders, our state leaders. Um, and um, one thing to be included in the Constitution, that's a very tricky one, there would be a lot of things. Um, but one thing mainly would be marginalized groups that needs to be addressed, especially persons with disabilities. Uh, there are 1.7 million out of the total population today who are suffering from some sort of a disability. And what we have forgotten is, we, whether we suffer it today or not, one fine day we are going to face these difficulties. And why haven't these provisions been made in it? So that will be the one key area for me. Thank you. Rookie, would you like to talk a little bit about what the gentleman asked about the remembrance? How do we include the... Uh, I think there are many people uh, who the reference would have been as losers, but who are not necessarily losers in all senses of the word, but people who have uh, suffered or been affected in uh, some way uh, to have their voices heard. And I think uh, many of them have been very courageous in trying to have their voices heard. Uh, but unfortunately, I think uh, what has happened is that they've had very little opportunities or platforms or occasions to uh, raise their voices. And often their voices have been voices in the wilderness as such. So I think uh, what we have to try and do consciously is to give more opportunities and spaces for those uh, people to have their voices heard. And I think in the past, uh, no, I think we've had many people, you know, people whose lands have been occupied, you know, families of uh, political prisoners, families of disappeared people, who've been trying very hard to have their voices heard. But some people are simply not sympathetic and sensitive. You, know, you, could, you could just brush it aside, are these some crazy people in front of the fourth station or something, or in Jaffna or wherever, and they are brushed aside and their voices are not really heard. So they are, voices are there. It's a matter whether we are willing to listen or whether we are willing to provide a platform. And I think that's the challenge. And that is a particular challenge, I think, for the mainstream media uh, to do, because, uh, again, you know, there has been very little opportunities uh, for these voices to be heard in the mainstream media. Uh, again, no, like Crystal said, is, uh, we have a lot of uh, expectations from a new constitution. Uh, so I would say that, no, I would like to see the reference to foremost place given to one religion being stuck off from any future constitution. At the moment, Buddhism is given foremost place, so I would like it to be stuck off. Do we like to talk more about the remembrance day as well? Um, first to respond to that gentleman's comment about what I would like to see in the constitution and then linking up, link it up with remembrance. Um, so I was thinking, when you asked me, 
Perhaps I would like to see uh, our new constitution with a strong law on right to information. I know that's supposed to bring a bill in, but I feel that if that's embedded in our constitution, we can perhaps, maybe this is very idealistic, solve the other gentleman's question. His question was, look, we have an issue where victors always write the history or they write the big story. So historically speaking, we call that meta-narratives, the big story, the big voice, uh, the stories that you hear about Sri Lanka's history top down, about the kings, leaders. But luckily, we are living in the 20th and 20, I mean, the 20th century changed a lot of that from the period of the Enlightenment. And now we're in the 21st century. And we have structures, I believe, to challenge meta-narratives. For example, we we have social media. We have ways in which we can ch challenge the traditional stories, the traditional narratives. So if we had more access to information as well, I believe to a certain extent we can allow voices that are subjugated, voices that have been overwritten, uh, which have been, you know, with the state-dominated sort of voices, a top-down effect, we can challenge those. Maybe you couldn't do it 300 years ago or 200 years ago in colonial Colombo, uh, but you can do it today. Uh, you, we did it, in a sense, uh, in the last two or three months before the January 8th election. And I, I see youth playing a big role in that on social media, challenging uh, the meta-narrative, challenging what was being told using various mediums. I mean, cartoons, videos. Uh, my favorite video was when they made that one of Namal uh, inviting uh, uh, Shah Rukh Khan when it was Salman Khan. And uh, afterwards, we had uh, the video cut to a picture of Salman crying behind a tree and Shah Rukh laughing from like two different Hindi movies. I loved it, I thought it was perfect. It summed it all up for me. And I think that really uh, using even comic forms, we are ch I mean, constant, I love what Avanta Artigala is putting out in the Daily Mirror. We are challenging the meta-narrative. We are living in a different generation, in a different society. We don't need to rely on one historian or one big story. All of us do have voices. However, as Ruki was saying, still it's difficult for those voices to get heard. There may be mediums, there may be uh, structures that are already in existence, but how do you ensure that they are heard and people take notice of them? So that is the constant struggle. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think just picking up on a few points that have been raised, I mean, uh, a few months ago we had this discussion, International Alert um, organized a discussion with, uh, with, with embassies looking at uh, the participation of women in politics from their own countries. And one of the things that came out consistently um, from a couple of the countries was saying, look, uh, quotas are good. You start with quotas. But the problem is quotas become counterproductive at some stage. So the best thing is to try and reach a balance whereby you've, you've you have quotas so you can encourage, encourage the practice in. But at some point, you need to re remove the quotas as well because what happens is it, it becomes counterproductive. So you actually have have to have someone in there, even though that person may not be fit for the job. So the question is, how do you reach that balance? And I think what we need to do, and I think this is a conversation even for, for politics here, is how do you reach a balance whereby you get the, the good people in parliament, and it's not run by money, it's not run by, it's not run by influence, but it's run by people who can get in. And this actually goes to another point where how do we get young people into the, into the system? I'm having spoken to 
people from the youth parliament uh, who used to complain that, you know, when they're, tr when they're trying to work in constituencies where, where MPs are there, sometimes MPs, they're more popular than the MPs, so the MPs actually prevent them from working because, uh, you know, they're, they're scared that they're... they're at, so, so how do you actually encourage this, this, these people to actually be part of the system? Um, on the constitution, just before I answer your point, sir, one of the things that I... That uh, again, another another discussion that the South African High Commissioner came up, and we were talking about about constitutions and how it was written. And then he said, "Look, right, we had 30 years. We were in jail for 30 years, right? We had 30 years to write our constitution. We did nothing, just write our constitution. You don't have that luxury, right? So, but you have you have examples from other countries. So learn from and engage. And I think this is something that we." perhaps need to encourage more in terms of, of, of that. So when we go, let's look at other countries as well and let's, let's, let's learn from them and, and, and see where they've made mistakes. What I'd like to see, and again, I'm speaking very, very idealistically and I, I share Rookie's and Senal's point, but I'd like to see the concept of compassion in there. I'd like to see that we treat everyone as we wish to be treated and that is something that needs to be put in so that, so that everyone is given the dignity and humanity that they, that they deserve and, and they're treated with. Can I open it up again on that note? Can I open it up again for, for the questions or are, are we nearing the time when people need to disappear off? Sorry, is there... Okay. Sir, so you talk about uh, uh, striking a balance in terms of uh, gender. Uh, and you also talked about, sir, about uh, trying to remove a quota. You suggested the quota system. Uh, but we have been, uh, since independence, that quota hasn't uh, even come naturally to our parliament. So my, my suggestion is that we should uh, 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 ensure that it's in the legislature or in the constitution that we have so many seats for women or women or insist that uh, political parties have so many women as parliamentary candidates and preferably in safe seats so that they are compelled to have a number of women. We have to kickstart the gender uh, equality issue straight away. We can't wait for another 50 to 75 years before we see uh, a parliament consisting of women reflecting the larger population. Uh, yes, I would, I would agree with you on that. Um, but we also then need to ensure that that's across the board in other parts of society as well, so private sector, um, you know, provincial council, everything else, so, um, the universities. So um, any other questions at the back or are we... Oh, yes, ma'am, over here in the front. People say that uh, there must be a gender balance in certain things. Uh, are they ignoring that some women don't want to get into dirty politics because politics has been getting too dirty to get near? Corruption, patronage, they don't like it. So why do we insist uh, there should be gender balance? There should be better politics so that they will go, go and grab it. Thank you. I think I can see a lot of people nodding, so I, they're in agreement with that. Any 
Other points? Uh, yes, someone at the back there. Oh. Um, <clears throat> it's about uh, women in politics. Uh, we should have women in politics because we can see over and over again only 5.8% in the parliament and it's very less in down in the local government and municipality. Here certain analysis came and why women are not in the politics. Basic reason is the first of all she is educated or non-educated, rich or poor. The household responsibility, the gender role she plays at home. Even she comes to politics, she has to look after the house and children. And a super patriarchal system we have even when it comes to political parties and all party leaders are men. This is a challenge for women to come to politics. And men should take over the responsibility of parenting and sharing the household responsibility. And second thing is character assassination. No, that uh, Chanel was talking. If everybody is asking now, yeah, these women were in the parliament, what they have done so far, asking about Ferial, asking about um, other women uh, parliamentarian. I have to ask what the men was doing. There's many men, yeah. many parliamentarians doing nothing. But when it comes to women, so many challenges, and she doesn't like to go to the face the character assassination and the responsibility, household responsibility. And along with others, some recommendation, I would say every political party should change their constitution to give nomination, 30% or 33% nomination as a candidate and reserve seat. Automatically women come to parliament and the local government. And I have argued with many political parties and they are not agreeing. And third thing so with him. Can we? Um, yeah, I, I'm just I, quickly. Yeah. And when the war to take, took over, women contributed a lot. It can be a single women or Tamil women. In the LTT, there's more youth and who were sea tigers and other tigers. But when they come to the political arena, all the, polit the all armed uh, groups, it can be JV, from JVP to LTT. Where are those women? Now ex combatants get mar married or they have no livelihood, they are stuck. But men has come to politics. And that also older men, not so, the youth. So I just say, this is a problem that we have, which really curtailed women to participate in politics. Thank you. I think without wishing to start a debate on women in politics, but um, because this is, the, but I would also like to invite Sharania, who had a hand up before I made that announcement, so. Um, just very briefly, since we seem to have hijacked the conversation into women in politics, um, drawing from the s submissions that have been made, uh, two things jump out at me. One is that any time this issue is raised, it sort of becomes the focus of the conversation, which says to me that finally this issue has come to the forefront. We weren't talking about it maybe five years ago, but more than talking about it now, we're demanding it, which is a great sign. Um, the second thing I want to say is a lot of the issues that are raised up about why women don't enter politics, whether it's the corruption or the character assassination, um, goes back to the very deep-seated sexism and gender equality that exists across our society. Uh, I don't think it's limited to women in politics. Uh, my mother was a working mother. She'd go for parents' teacher day meeting and she'd be told, you're a working mother so you don't really know what's going on with your children. Um, this is how we talk to our kids. 
uh, I was at a World Bank gender consultation where one of the women told us her son's textbook, or her son had an exam where they said, who is the um, head of your household? And he had said, my mother, and the teacher had marked it as wrong and refused to give him marks for that. Um, she didn't name the school, but she said it was a local school. Again, it's also when we talk about men who are earning less than their wives, we call them ponayas, or you know, we say guys under the thumb, whipped. So it's not just an issue of women in politics at all, and I think if we're drawing it back to this architecting of a new society or a new constitution, we also need to think about things we have accepted for generations, and we need to think about whether it is the Singhala Tamil issue, or whether how we refer to people, he's Singhala, he's thus, he must be like that, she's Tamil, she must be like that, or whether we're talking about people with disabilities or any of it. I think we need to look back at the very deep-seated issues and not get carried away by the surface conversations and look really deeply into issues that have penetrated generations through. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Sharanya. I think uh, we have one p more point over there, and then uh, we will call it a, a night because we're reaching 7.30. Um, well, this is actually a question to uh, Sanel, uh, because he was talking about youth in politics and youth in decision-making. Um, Sanel, do you believe that when you speak of youth here, you are only focusing your attention on youth who have access to decision-makers, access to politicians? Because if you if you mean that youth, and when you do say that, it is eventually youth who do have access to these uh, sort of uh, powerful people in society. But those youth only uh, account for just a very small minority. Whereas the youth who are in the rural area, the rural youth, for them, getting into decision making is not their priority. For them, getting into university is their top priority. For them, uh, being able to fend for their family is top priority. So, um, and also if you read this book by Nihal De Silva, The Generale Conspiracy, it really hits on that point. It talks about ragging in universities, but the main reason for ragging is because it's not about youth getting involved in decision making, it's youth, and when we say youth, the entire youth in Sri Lanka, given the equal opportunities and access to education, employment, health services, and being able to um, sort of equip youth with this to allow them into decision making. So I would want you to clarify what you meant here by youth uh, being involved in politics and in decision making. Yeah, I would. I would agree with you on one level and then maybe perhaps disagree a little bit with you on a different level. I would agree with you on that. Perhaps I spoke of youth as like a homogeneous group, whereas youth are not homogeneous. There are young people who are coming from different backgrounds. There are young people coming from different, for example, people with different genders, people with different sexual orientations, disabilities, and so on. People. Uh, so I, I, perhaps I spoke of youth as a homogeneous group, which is not true. They're young, their youth itself as society is diverse. But I would perhaps disagree with you that, that perhaps if I don't come from a certain class, or if I don't come from, for example, an urban region, then I don't have access to be active politically. I wouldn't think that's necessarily the case. I would, uh, there are young people in different parts of the country who have access to, for example, their local council politicians, there are provincial council politicians who are very active politically in those regions. 
Uh, you also spoke about ragging and so on. I was uh, ragged in university. Uh, I went to police for that. I went to the police that and so on. It's a, diff a story for a different time. But uh, <laughs> but I completely Sounds like a very interesting story. <laughs> yeah. I, I I completely agree with you on the story that ragging is also an expression of 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 hierarchy in society. Uh, it's an expression of class, but also it's it's also um, it's gendered and so on as well. Uh, but I would disagree with you on that. That you don't you that young people only of a certain class can be active politically, but I believe that there are privileges in the society, and people have certain privileges. And if you are, if you are Sinhala, then maybe you have you are more privileged to be active politically. If you speak English, then maybe you are more privileged. If you come from Kalambo, then you are more privileged. If you're a man, then maybe you are more privileged. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are Tamil, in Jaffna, maybe with a disability, who are also active politically. So I, but yeah. Great. What I'd like to do now is uh, thank everyone for what has been a riveting conversation um, and uh, feedback from the audience. Uh, if you'd like to join me in showing my, uh, our appreciation for our panelists. Sanjana, over to you. And to Amjad as well for being a wonderful moderator. Uh, so we've gone a long time. I won't keep you from whatever that you have this evening. There are copies of the catalog available, so please grab a copy, including for those of you who couldn't catch it, uh, or rather who couldn't get a catalog over the weekend. We had to print more because the crowds have been quite unprecedented. We didn't plan for so many to come. Uh, details of the exhibition are available online. What I would also aim to do is to put all of this stuff up online on a dedicated website. People have asked for it. Uh, I've already got very high-resolution scans and images. Um, need to figure out a way to put them up online. It'll take some time, but eventually this exhibition will be on a dedicated website in all three languages uh, with my uh, curator's guide embedded into it so that people uh, who missed out on either coming here or people who cannot ever come here can also avail themselves of uh, some of the artifacts around us. Um, for those of you who have come almost on every single night, thank you very much. For those of you who came to see this exhibition today and also on the, uh, the, 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 the six days before this, thank you very much uh, for your engagement. Uh, what happens to this now? Um, don't quite know. It will go into storage. Some of it will go into storage. Uh, we, we hope to translate it into Singhal and Tamil and with colleagues at the Center for Policy Alternatives also take it around to all the districts as a consequence of the work we are doing anyway to have some of these discussions going uh, in, in those lo uh, locations. So thank you very much and I wish you a pleasant evening. <laughs>